Welcome to another episode of the Hat Collecting Talk Show, where we talk about the many different metaphorical hats that people wear in our lives, because no one does just one thing, and everyone has a story. I am your host, Lacey Artemis, a creative Jill of all trades, a creative Jill of many trades, I should say, and uh, today I am joined by Claire A.H., who is a matchmaker, a disability activist, and a whole lot more. Claire runs Friend of a Friend Matchmaking. She works to raise awareness around disability, sexuality, and relationships, and is just generally living her best life otherwise. Um, Claire's pronouns are she and her for the listeners. Well, welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. The reason that you're on the show is actually because um, the previous owner, a friend of a friend, uh, kind of stumbled back upon me on Twitter recently. And I was like, you know what? I actually would love to like interview a matchmaker on my show. And she's like, oh, you should talk to Claire. So here we are. <laughs> Thanks, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, the, the kind of the way that we start this show now is I uh, like to ask the guests uh, where they grew up. So I actually, I grew up in Toronto. Uh, I grew up in downtown Toronto. So I went away for a number of years to Montreal. And then about a decade later, I decided, you know, I miss my family. I kind of miss where I grew up. And so I've been here now for yeah seven, eight years again. Uh, I do promise to the audience, by the way, I know I'm having a lot of Toronto people on the show, obviously, because I live here. So that's where I know people from. But I will be having other guests on in, in the future that are not all from Toronto. <laughs> but uh, with that said, I will do the, uh, the the land acknowledgement for the show, which I do every episode. Toronto or Tecoronto is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations, the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabe. This is a dish with one spoon treaty territory, and we are uninvited visitors on this land. And also, I'll just throw it out there again, I do it every few episodes, but uh, Black Lives Matter, there's a button on the screen for the people not listening. We support Black Lives Matter on hat collecting. <laughs> um, so with that said... Um, so I said in the intro a couple of things that you do, and I know there's there's more that will come up throughout the show, as it always does. But um, do you want to take a moment to talk about things that you are doing and how you got into them? Yeah. So I guess the, like the, the main thing and certainly the, the way we got to know each other, at least kind of circuitously, uh, is matchmaking. So... I have been matchmaking now for about five years, and I took over a friend of a friend. Uh, so Sophie Papamarco, the former owner, former owner, uh, was with friend of a friend for a long time, but uh, she took on some external matchmakers so that she could focus on other things. She's a writer. And um, over time, a lot of us were doing matchmaking. There were, I think, four of us at the most, plus Sophie. And when she realized at a certain point that it, administrating a company isn't the most exciting thing, she kind of said, I think I'm going to move on from this. And instead of just shutting it down, offered it up to a few of us. And I ultimately was the one who thought, hey, I'm going to do this. But I was a client, a friend of a friend. That's how I first got involved. Um, I've worked in sexuality and relationships more kind of in an educational way, as well as, you know, working with companies, uh, doing PR and marketing. Uh, and I had been doing that for about five years previously. And I had a stroke, I had actually three strokes, and I kind of moved away from that work. And by the time I was ready to look for work again, Sophie posted that kind of call for matchmakers at the time. And I said, huh, well, you know, I've done I've done some like sexuality coaching for relationships and dating. I've certainly done a lot of education, which included often talking about relationships, often talking about dating. And 
feel like I might be good at it. So I applied and I got the job and I've been doing it now. Yes, as I said, five years. And then it's been a year, a year of officially owning in front of a friend. Plus, you know, like I think it was like a year and a half beforehand where I was kind of planning it. And it's been, it's been interesting because honestly, Although I actually ended up never using Friend of a Friend's services, I, I decided I needed to do some work on myself before dating. I credit the meeting we had. We do these kind of hour to two-ish hour long meetings with really giving me a sense of what I wanted. And it was a clarity that I never had before. And it, you know, I had done, obviously I had worked in sexuality and relationships. So I knew kind of what I was looking for. I had done coaching for other people, but it, when it really came down to kind of doing the work on myself, I didn't somehow. And it wasn't until someone sat across from me and really asked me, you know, how are things going? How are you feeling about it? That I, everything kind of came crashing down. (laughs) So I've, I've loved being able to help other people with that. And that's why I sort of expanded front of a friend to not just be matchmaking, but also coaching. Also, I guess online dating support, which is a form of coaching, but specifically oriented towards helping people feel good about online dating. And it's just been so nice to give people what I got from it. Yeah. And um, so I know you mentioned that you had the strokes. And so I know that you do have like, a, would you, I guess you, you have a disability. Now, yeah, I have uh, I guess some disabilities. Uh, yeah. Would you like me to expand? <laughs> Uh, I mean, there is a question later in the show for this, but uh, if you want to um, maybe just really briefly kind of touch on that. Yeah, well, certainly I'll talk about how it kind of relates to what I do with disability and sexuality and dating, which is that, so I had, we'll talk more about the strokes later, but I had three strokes and I was 28 and they happened because of a neck injury, likely due to dance or yoga. So kind of as out of the blue as something could be. And the truth is with a lot of disabilities, you know, either they are something that you're born with or there's something that they happen one day. And so I had that experience, but as I had able-bodied privilege before, and I didn't have a lot of understanding of what was going on, I certainly had people in my life already who worked in sexuality and worked in dating around disability specifically, just friends of mine, people who I cared about. And uh, luckily, once I was you know, able to kind of, once I was out of the hospital, once I was able to kind of return to activities of daily living, I spent a lot of time working with some of them, uh, presenting at sexuality conferences, presenting um, at conferences focused on healthcare, going into um, uh, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, uh, speech language, speech language pathology, and um, rehab spaces in uh, different universities to talk to people. And um, my good friend, Natalie, Dr. Natalie Rose, uh, she and I uh, collaborated on a, (laughs) it's an academic uh, piece for a journal, the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. And it is a co-constructed ethno, ethnography, I believe that's what what we called it. Uh, Essentially, the story of my sex life after the stroke. (laughs) So very specific. And it was, you know, it's like being taught in schools and, and I've had occupational therapists come to me and, and professors come to me and talk to me about it, which is very interesting. But it's fundamentally about my experience in and out of like the hospital and rehabilitation settings and how they did or did not address anything to do with my physical sexuality or, you know, my queerness or my relationship kind of anything. So we ended up, you know, over the years getting a chance to 
speak about it and write about it in multiple different ways. But it was very interesting that the most, I guess, the most accessible and professional one was really just me talking about the intimate details of my sexuality and my body. Yeah, I um, just sort of really briefly, I, uh, as I told you uh, in the pre-show lobby, I did actually use the services of friend for friend, not once, but twice. Yeah. Um, and I do vaguely remember going through the kind of initial interview process with Sophie. And, and obviously you want it to be pretty comprehensive because it helps get a better match. So asking about things like, you know, libido and kind of sexual preferences and things like that. And so, uh, but I don't... Um, I don't specifically remember if if like the kind of disability thing was. I mean, I do remember one of my matches was a was a I think either a cane user or did use a mobility aid, and and Sophie had kind of asked like, is that okay with you? And it's like, yeah, why not? Um, so it was addressed in a sense, but um, certainly with you having a direct experience with it, that makes it a much different thing, and you have a much better ability to to kind of work with that. It's been interesting. I think, you know, there are so many different axes when you look at dating and sort of whether it's prejudices in dating or just things to consider when you're making a making a match or when you're potentially going to date someone online. And disability is one that's often not even thought of. The other question I like to ask, uh, kind of a sub question, I guess, to this is, um, what would you say are the biggest misconceptions about these things? So I guess biggest misconceptions about like kind of being a matchmaker and relationship coach, and biggest misconceptions about, uh, I guess, your form or your level of disability? Absolutely. Um, So when it comes to matchmaking, I guess, a misconception that luckily people don't come to me with, but I really try to, you know, share nonstop all the time is, I can't promise you love and anyone who promises you love is a, you know, is lying and you should leave that situation. Um, the things I can do is I can offer a better experience. I can offer a caring and listening ear. I mean, obviously I do coaching and online dating support and matchmaking separately, but as I always tell clients, as long as they're not, you know, calling me 24 hours a day, as long as we're not having four coaching sessions a week, to a certain extent, these things, you know, I like to offer all of the services. I like to be relatively comprehensive is I can be a neutral-ish third party with a disproportionate amount of information about them, what they're looking for, the relationship they're looking for, who they're looking for, and a lot of information about dating culture, online dating culture, you know, like norms of dating, when to kind of address them, when to undo them, when to question them. And I'm in their corner. And that's what I can offer. And I care a whole lot. And I like I do have a good track record, which is wonderful. But yeah, I think those that's one of the main misconceptions that I think about matchmaking as a whole. The other one is, and this is more true to the type of matchmaking I do, is a lot of people think matchmaking is just for really fancy people, like just for a quote unquote VIP clientele, like they're thinking people who are on yachts. And the truth is, there are a lot of matchmakers who work with more affluent clients. And because for a lot of people, it is like a very, a very VIP service, for lack of a better word. And I think that's wonderful. I think that's a, you know, a client base that needs to be serviced, of course. But you know, like you and I have been clients in front of a friend and I'm sure you're very fancy, but let's put it this way. I've never been on a yacht. I've never, you know, like I'm, I don't feel like that type of service is for me, but I nonetheless think that there should be people who are looking out for 
the everyday person, people who are really will make really great partners and will be really kind and will be, you know, interesting and challenging and fun, but who maybe are not in this kind of upper echelon that can afford a service that is, you know, far in my price range anyways. And then when it comes to my disability, I mean, as a stroke survivor, there are so many assumptions about strokes and strokes are just, they're so unique. Mine, uh, I had three uh, due to a neck injury. So a lot of people assume that I had a stroke due to whatever insert reason here. And often they will kind of put culpability on there, which I find complicated because on the one hand, I didn't have one of those types of strokes. But on the other hand, if I did, is it fair to judge me for that? If, if they think it's related to, you know, drug use, or if they think it's related to, you know, my health as it pertains to like diet and exercise, I don't care. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff to contend with. And then, you know, I think there's a lot of, I certainly <laughs> from, you know, nurses and doctors and occupational therapists, people in the medical setting saying, you're so young. And yes, like the median age of people who have strokes is much, much higher. When I was in the stroke ward, I was, me and my first roommate was 98 years old. So we didn't have, we were not maybe in the exact same cohort, but strokes are something that they can happen at any age. They can happen for a myriad of reasons. And ultimately the outcome also is very different from person to person. And mine were physiological, but not often in the ways that people traditionally think of with a physiological stroke. Mine were not really on like the cognitive side, but there are elements. And so it's been, I've been able to also challenge my own kind of like preconceived notions of what a stroke is and what, you know, recovery would be. So challenges everyone. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. Uh, I mean, I haven't really talked about it too much on the show. Uh, I have some kind of more minor and and kind of like intermittent uh, physical issues, but um, nothing um, like every once in a while I do use a cane if I really kind of feel, but like the more, I guess, main thing is I, for about a year and a little over a year, I've had kind of a slight tremor in my dominant hand. And um, when it gets bad, it, it's to the point where actually uh, maybe I'll have to like actually hold a glass with two hands or I'll have to just switch to my other hand more for things. Um, but it's, yeah, not quite, uh, I don't want to say it's not as, you know, important or valid, but it's, uh, it's just a little bit different, but it's kind of one of those things that, you know, people don't usually notice because it's, it's very kind of minor, but, uh, like I feel it like actually right now it's a little bit, uh, a little stronger, but uh, usually I try to like to like relate or, or kind of share, uh, one of my own experiences related to what the guest has said, but I try not to do it too much. So, um, with that said, uh, the next question on our list here is, um, when you were a child, do you remember what you wanted to be or to do when you grew up? Yes. So I think this kind of, it, it brings back a lot of what I did. So the first time I went to school, uh, the first time I went to university, um, I wanted to be an opera singer. And so I went to school for opera. I studied uh, classical voice performance. And I, you know, like I went to performing arts high school and I was really involved in, you know, opera and theater and dance and all those things. <sighs> I I had this vision as a child of myself on this on the stage and I was involved um the Canadian Opera Company has children's choruses and so I was involved in the choir that did that so I was I was really involved in that and I was also I used to go to the National Ballet School not the the full-time school but the the dance school and so I did you know ballets when I was a little kid and I just thought okay 
performing arts. There's just a thing and you do and you're good at it and, and you do it and you love it and it's perfect. And what I found as, you know, I made the choice to go to school to study it and to do it professionally was just that just because you're good at something and just because you really like it doesn't necessarily mean you should do it as a career. And what I found is I have, I have my friends who have gone and done it professionally and not to say that there are varying levels of success because that sounds judgmental, but there are people who maybe have like a very obvious, you know, capital S success kind of story that anyone would look at. And then I have other people who are, you know, who are still doing it, who are still singing, who are still getting roles and, and, you know, they're teaching as well, or they're, you know, working with choirs as well. They're kind of, they're making their artwork. And then there are a lot of us who identify that it's really nice to want to do something and it's really nice to get to do it in some way, shape or form, but that the life of a performing artist is, it can be lonely. It can be hard. I think part of it really was, I, I identified how, how much I wanted, not like a family life necessarily. I don't, I don't know about kids or anything like that, but a home life with a partner kind of stable and settled. And the people who I know who are pursuing it actively usually don't have that. And at a certain point, kind of around 30, I realized dreams are nice, but maybe there are ways to kind of, to, to still sing, to still enjoy it and not make it the only thing in my life. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I don't know if you were sort of foreshadowing the next question there on purpose or not. (laughs) It tells me that you read the questions a bit more uh, mindfully, which I do appreciate because I'm never sure if people are actually reading the, the, I send all the guests prep materials before they come on, obviously, because I don't want to surprise them. Um, But again, I'm never sure how much they actually like really absorb it. So um, yeah, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that I'm kind of framing this next question, even though it has tended to revolve around this idea that we're supposed to have our lives figured out by 30, which most of us don't, um, is kind of instead, um, at what age, if this has happened for you yet, uh, certainly um, is a qualifier, but uh, is it, uh, have you reached the point yet uh, where you kind of feel like you're on a path that you like that you want to keep following? And if so, what age were you when you first got onto that path? So this is, I don't know if it's funny or sad. I choose to think funny. Um, so there was a good, there's like a four to six month period when I was 27 to 28, right before my stroke, that I was like, my life is excellent. I am a genius at the time. So I, and I think when you were asking me kind of what I did and like other things that I do aside from matchmaking, I had... I mean, like, I definitely talked about it in therapy. <laughs> I had my little moment because um, pre-stroke, I was incredibly type A. Like, there's still there's still a tendency, but uh, I, you know, there was so much that I was doing. And I was working as a sex educator. I was also working for a company. I also had a radio show that I was doing. I had a podcast. I had a storytelling night that had become quite successful. I was a burlesque performer. And I was finally at the point where I was getting more gigs than I was paying for rhinestones, which is a critical place. And I was getting to do things like uh, three days after my stroke, I was supposed to be doing a choreographed, it was like burlesque, but also kind of like contemporary dance performance for my favorite band's EP release. Like I was really hitting it out of the park. I did um, 
my my hero at the time, Tristan Termino, uh, who's like a sex educator as well, I did her podcast that week. And I was just, I felt like I was hitting it out of the park. I had met my partner and we had just moved in together. Uh, I just, I felt creatively fulfilled. I felt like I was doing really good work. I felt I had um, gotten the opportunity to speak at a university about, you know, sexuality. And I was, I was just there. And then I had three strokes and I couldn't walk and I couldn't lift my head and I couldn't eat or drink. I couldn't use my hands. And none of those things are necessary because I don't want it to sound like if you can't do those things, life can't be good. But all of a sudden I had to completely relearn everything in my body. And, you know, there are many disabilities that are, you know, that people identify as challenging. Like I think a lot of people look at me and, you know, I'm a cane user, but I was a wheelchair user before I was a walker user before and see progress, which is, you know, I have complicated feelings about that, but one very obvious one for me was um, drinking water. I love water. I love drinking water. I love being hydrated. I love when my mouth feels hydrated. It's wonderful. And that was a very clear thing that I all of a sudden couldn't do. And it was quite, you know, initially it was dramatic. I was in the ICU. My blood oxygen level was really low. You know, there were some, they thought I might have pulmonary embolisms and the type of stroke I had, it would have been the, you know, the, the way to treat a pulmonary embolism would have been bad for the type of stroke I had because it was actually an actual physical injury to the uh, blood vessel. And it was just very dramatic. So I had this great window where I felt so good. And then I had to relearn everything. So I guess my kind of existential crisis I had was because over the past five years, and the stroke was, yeah, I guess five and a half years ago, I had a stroke, three strokes, but you know, a stroke event. I relearned how to do all these things in my body. I kind of like lost my job slash left the industry I was in, had to refine work had to, I went back to school and studied psychology, which is very exciting and fulfilling, but certainly not initially what I had planned on doing. And then I took over the company. I also got married in that time, um, lost my beloved dog in that time. And then the global pandemic. Hit. <laughs> so I feel like uh, I, I was there for a second. And there are many ways in which I'm kind of, I'm back or I'm in a new and better place. But when it comes to things like what do I do outside of work and just trying to have a good life? I can no longer point to the like eight hobbies I have and the eight you know passion projects I have on the go. It's a little more, you know, I have a I have a business and I have my family and I have my pets and I have things that I do. I have you know charitable causes I care about and currently I'm just kind of trying to survive and have a good time. <laughs> yeah, no, that totally makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and so the next question, funny enough, was uh, is usually like, what was one of the biggest obstacles for you? And obviously, having a stroke event certainly could qualify. Um, so I guess we'll kind of just leapfrog that one. Sometimes I kind of think it's fun when, when the guest kind of pre-answers future questions, because <laughs> um, then I can ask the future ones a little bit differently sometimes. Um, but so the next question here is, again, based on kind of a cultural narrative, this idea that once we're like adults and we're grownups, that we're not supposed to goof around and be silly and play uh, like, like children unless we're playing with children. 
but I, I don't believe in that. I kind of, you know, push that idea aside. But so I like to ask my guests, um, what is the last silly or playful thing that you did on purpose that had nothing to do with children? Well, I mean, I, I know some great kids, but obviously because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to see any of them. So aside from like, you know, the occasional, oh, they're in a Zoom or, you know, I'm having a Facebook or Instagram chat with people and they show me cute photos of their kids. I don't really have kids in my life right now. But I do have a, a very, very silly relationship with my my husband and specifically both of our pets. I am a very animal-oriented person and I don't treat them like children because that's, you know, the thing that people do. It's not exactly what I do, but I sing them songs all the time. And all of the songs are, they're mostly covers. I essentially am the Weird Al Yankovic of very pet-oriented songs exclusively. So every day, multiple times a day, I am coming up with new and interesting rhyme schemes for, you know, classic or current hits but just about my pets about their butts and about their noses and about like their weird smelling feet so I believe strongly in being playful I self-identify as a very funny person (laughs) but also definitely like a silly strange person and I just think that's you know it's an incredibly important part of my life that is so great and I'm actually a big Weird Al fan so for you to say you're the Weird Al of like pet songs is like that's so great I love it. Um, On the sort of the flip side, I'm not sure if this is actually like a flip side, but that's kind of what I've been calling it. But so this other idea of self care, and like you kind of mentioned before, thinking that you know the only people that use services like like matchmaking are you know really rich, fancy people. And so I think on a similar note, a lot of people think of self care as like you know just going to the spa and getting completely pampered and you know stuff like or spending a lot of money on something. But self care can be really simple, small acts as well. And I think for kind of the millennial and the Gen Z. And, you know, I'm, I think we're both probably millennials. Um, yeah, so I think for, for kind of our generation that, uh, you know, we a lot of us certainly don't have the financial means to do anything big and fancy. So, um, but we find ways to, to kind of make it work for us. So what would be, uh, what is one of the last things that you did for self-care, no matter how small it was? Well, I think especially because we're currently in a global pandemic. And for me anyways, because like I have other health stuff as well. I just have a whole fun concoction of health things. I really have been staying at home. Like I walk, walk outside sometimes with my dog. Lovely. Um, Every couple of weeks we, you know, get one of those like pickup orders at no frills. And once in a while I have to go somewhere for, for a curbside pickup, but I'm almost exclusively at home. And what I've been enjoying is there have been a few articles that have come out lately that are essentially, well, I guess now winter has come, but winter is coming and we're going to be inside again. What are you going to do to make your life just a little bit nicer? And so for me, the answer has been very minor, but meaningful home stuff. Things like getting blackout curtains for the bedroom because we live opposite a beautiful, but very bright sign. Um, you know, uh, I put for, for years and years and years, I thought someday, and I've been in this house for like six and a half years now, someday I'm going to get some shelves above the bed and I'm going to put like a little hanging vine and some pretty art up there. And, you know, the art was sort of stacked on the, on the floor in my office. So we put up a couple picture ledges and they're above the bed. So just little things where I look around the house. And then the other thing is just slightly nicer things for cooking not much nicer but like for instance I like Malden sea salt 
And it's, when I say it's a nice thing, it's like it's $6.99 and, you know, you get it and then it lasts for like eight months. But it does kind of level up my toast and it does, it adds a little little flavor, a little crunch to things. Um, Getting a pepper mill that isn't super annoying, that actually works and mills the pepper effectively. Just small things like that. A better baking tray. Nothing, nothing super fancy, but the thing that I'm thinking, okay, I'm not that I was ever going out all the time, but I'm cooking pretty much 100% of my meals at home. And if every time I'm looking at my cookie sheet or my baking sheet and thinking like, oh, this is so annoying to wash because it doesn't fit in the sink properly, I could do a thing about that. So that's been my self-care, just kind of slightly leveling up things that I use out all day, every day. I am pretty much right there with you. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I, I know I'm going to sound repetitive in my kind of responses, but um, yeah, it's it's just sort of partly to keep the show moving and partly because like I don't want to add too much of my own kind of extra to, to, I like to let the guests answer stand on their own as much as I can. Um, with that said, the next question here is, what is the last new thing that you learned, whether it was a new uh, skill or a piece of information? And what is something you would still like to learn, whether it's a skill or information? Well, so I don't know if it's exactly new, but uh, I've back in university when I was studying voice the first time, I took a year of Italian. And I am very good at like speaking Italian from like if I'm reading a, a piece, like I'm good at singing Italian, I guess. And I'm good at you know, pronouncing it well, I had to take like a a diction class in Italian. And that was why I had to take the foundational year. But do I speak it as a language? No, not at all. So I've been uh, doing Duolingo. And I've really been enjoying it. I also added Scots Gaelic, because I am of like, Scottish heritage. And so that's kind of like a new one. And then in terms of things I'd still like to learn. um, Again, this is like something I would pick up again. But these various guitars behind me behind me one actually belongs to me my uh my husband is not again not a professional musician we both made the decision to not become professional musicians but he is a musician we both studied music and um he's really great at the guitar and I there was a hot second in like the 10th grade where I was like I can play songs from by whole and I can play like karma police (laughs) and since then I have not done much of that one of the symptoms or like my kind of like post-stroke situation is that my hands are weak and they kind of lose grip sometimes and just in general I also can't I don't have sensation in either of them so very complicated but I've been thinking it would be nice to try again and at least to kind of get back to a place where I could theoretically pick out a song so that's on the on the docket so the next question here on the list is and what would you say are your two most dissimilar hats and hats in this context being either skills or interests? So I kind of, I thought about two things. And so on the one hand, it's like the sex and disability thing. I think a lot of people find that to be a very challenging mix, but the truth is there is a lot of writing about sex and disability. There's been frankly in, since I had the stroke, but especially in the past like year or two, a lot of like think pieces about it. A lot of people, a lot of sex educators were really focusing on it, which is great. The other one is just kind of in general, when I think about like the serious side of myself, and sometimes that's the sexuality side, sometimes that's, you know, just other like even the academic side of me and how incredibly silly I can be, how big I am into Muppets and and puppets in general, but especially like a Sesame Street Muppet thing. 
And I think when I was single, I sometimes felt like the, the, the fun levity in me made people think that I wasn't also a person of substance. And I think I love over and over and over giving people the opportunity through matchmaking or, or coaching or whatever to own both sides of themselves and to really to lean into the fact that you can be a silly weirdo and also be, you know, have gravitas sometimes have, you know, interests that fit that sort of more complex side of themselves. I love that answer because I very much consider myself one of those kinds of people as well. I talked a little bit in the pre-show lobby and I, I do a lot of different things, but like, you know, my day job is much more like administrative analytical. A lot of my hobbies are more creative and kind of a little bit more free form and, yeah, like I'm, I'm a very goofy person and I'm also very like, you know, I like to think kind of bigger picture and, you know, what does it all mean kind of stuff. So um, I appreciate, I love that you're doing that for people. That's super important. <laughs> um, so the next question here, and I guess this one might be a little bit more relevant if we kind of look at it, although maybe not because you didn't really have the typical day job, but I've been asking about like, what are, what's the guest schedule like? And do they have a peak time of day? And for some people I've asked, you know, pre-pandemic just because it makes more sense. But um, I don't know if there'd be that much difference for you, actually. <laughs> kind of. Um, I know for me, the my challenge, and I, I, I know at one point you referred to yourself, I think in the pre-show, as a morning person. And I admire morning people. And I have at times really wanted to be a morning person. And I have tried to force myself into that. I'm not. Um, but I do try to wake up at a quote-unquote decent hour. For some reason, when the pandemic first hit, I was like, I felt like a Disney princess. I would naturally fall asleep around midnight and I, the sun would come in, frankly, because I didn't have those uh, the blackout curtains. <laughs> so it was like 7, 7.30 in the morning. I just go, oh, and I feel nice and relaxed. And I think to a certain extent, maybe it's a little depression. Maybe it's a little, you know, darkness of the season, but it has become harder lately to do that organically. I've been having a little more insomnia and therefore a little more waking up groggily at like nine or 10. Oh. Um, I tend to, because I know when I'm most on, not book too many early morning appointments. I tend to be a little more of a, you know, starting at 11 o'clock in through the afternoon, but because of the nature of, you know, client-based meetings, a lot of my clients work nine to five. So I do have a lot of evening meetings. And I think that's when I come alive. When I think about, you know, both times I've been in school, when I've written, when I've really gone hard on an essay, yeah, it's like three o'clock in the morning. So a lot of times I will do my best administration. I will plan a bunch of social media or I will answer a bunch of emails and schedule them for like a time that makes me look like a, like a person who's working in a normal period of time. And that will happen late at night. So I certainly meet people during the day. I like I am around during the day. I'm awake. I'm around. I'm living. But I sort of my brain does its best work at night. That does seem to be the majority of not only my friends, but of people that I've talked to on the show. And it doesn't really surprise me. Um, part of that question is to kind of challenge another cultural narrative that um, maybe is not quite as prevalent. But I, I keep hearing people say like, oh, night people are, are naturally more creative. And I'm like, I don't think that that's true. <laughs> so I just, again, it's another part of like, you know, this show is kind of about like, you know, what you do, how you got to it, like what your experience is like, and the components that make you up that kind of 
made you who you are. So these are all things that are kind of relevant and, and interesting uh, for people to learn about. Um, so next question here on the list. Um, so we've been talking about, obviously, the, the pandemic disrupted things. And um, so I'm talking to a lot of different people, both on the show and off the show. Uh, I've been very pleased to hear that a lot of people, as much as it's been difficult in some ways, a lot of people have found you know, more time for projects that they always wanted to do or, or you know, more cooking or more time with people, uh, like, you know, the people that they live with. Um, so there, there have been kind of like silver linings and, and positives, but for you specifically, um, what has been a, a silver lining or a positive in your life, specifically because of the disruption of the pandemic? So I think when I think about matchmaking, and like every single new client asks me this, whether it's matchmaking or online dating support or coaching, um, I've had way more people coming to me who have, whether it's, you know, at the start of the pandemic or in the intervening months, who've had a lot of time to think about what they want. And often what this means is they're a little more open-minded. They're moving outside of their rigid expectations, like there's preferences and then there's like, no, they must be this tall or they must be, you know, X, Y, Z. And they're moving away from that. And so I, like the quality of matches I'm making are much higher because in general, I don't take anybody with extreme preferences. I, I don't, I don't want to work with somebody who is really, you know, reinforcing dating norms that I think are toxic and, and not helpful, but there's sort of a range of that. And people who maybe previously would have been more towards the end of what I will still accept, but is limiting all of a sudden are moving out of that. And they're challenging their preconceptions by themselves. They don't even have to do it. <laughs> so that's great. And then on a personal level, I mean, my sister and I have, you know, been close, but all of a sudden we, we voice or we video chat like three times a day, sometimes four, sometimes like in the evening, it'll be for an hour. So it's, I'm quite close with her. I've, I've had, you know, my, my core group of friends from high school that sort of expanded out into the other friends we made along the way we do a Sunday afternoon. We just do a standing group Zoom where, you know, it's not always all of us. And I certainly don't make it every week. But whereas normally during especially the like winter months, we would not be doing this, we would maybe get together for the holidays, or we maybe, you know, get together for a lot of us have birthdays in February, but we wouldn't be meeting every week. So that's been great. And even just at home, we've been like my husband and I have been cooking really good meals. We've been very relaxed. He doesn't have to commute anymore, which is great. I, my commutes were sort of more sporadic, but I was meeting people in an office space and meeting people in cafes. So just not having to deal with that stress, you know, when we're done, we're done. And we can spend a little more time making a nice meal. We can watch something that we really want to watch. We can do creative things. It's nice. Yeah. It's not all nice, but it's, this is nice. Yeah. Yeah, I have to admit for myself, and I think I've mentioned this on past episodes, that I've had a lot of fortunate uh, outcomes in my own life this year, which I'm very grateful for. But that's also why like, I'm, I'm glad to see that other people are also having uh, some good things to come out of this. And because uh, I know at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, obviously, it was all just, you know, the sky's falling and like, what are, what are we going to do? We kiss, this is nothing like this has ever happened. And I think people, you know, got to a point where they started to kind of settle into it and adapt and, and find ways to, to kind of capitalize on it, which is great. Um, so here's the question that we kind of alluded to earlier. Uh, I, I usually focus on kind of mental health, but we can talk about 
any kind of like health issues and just, I guess, expand a little bit more. So what I usually ask is, uh, have you dealt with any mental health issues and how have you worked through them? Sure. Whatever you're willing to talk about, but you can also talk more about uh, how the kind of um, the strokes impacted your life that you kind of held back on earlier. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, even when it comes to the mental health thing, certainly over the years, I've had anxiety and depression, both like, kind of like clinically identified and and things that I would still identify as within that realm. Um, Had OCD when I was younger, but I through medication and CBT actually kind of more or less resolved it, which is amazing. But that was when I was like 14. So a while ago. In terms of the stroke, like that was a big thing. And I've had other like I have other chronic health issues, which is frustrating some of them predating the stroke but certainly a lot of them cropping up related to the stroke which has been hard um and then one of the things so i have i have loss of sensation completely on my left side i also on my right side and my hand uh right side of my face my hand also reduced sensation i this is i'm working on it this is i think the root of my existential crisis about hobbies is uh one of my vocal cords is paralyzed and because of that, singing has drastically changed. And there's nothing, like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with not sounding like an opera singer, but there is something very hard and frustrating about spending a huge amount of your life working on cultivating this thing that was really a big part of your identity, and then it's gone. So that was hard. Um, you know, like, a loss of sensation means physical sensation means sexuality. Uh then I also have, uh, you know, I'm a cane user and I'm a cane user because of balance and weakness issues. I, my eyesight is really impacted. I have ipsilateral, like I have a, my eyes are different sizes now. I have with that, like a lot of vision issues, but also just kind of looking at my face and going, huh, it's different now. Um, there are other things I'm forgetting about a lot of it, but one of the, one of the issues specifically with, um, so I had a strokes in my cerebellum and medulla, uh, but the cerebellum, there's been increased research because I have become a huge nerd about research after. And I feel like some of my psychology degree was just me finding reasons to read a lot about cerebellar strokes and to like figure myself out and heal my emotions. But one of the things that has been coming up a lot is that cerebellum has to do mostly with like, I mean, a number of like physiological things, but then uh, like kind of your orientation in space, your ability to like stop on a dime when you're walking, things like that. There's been increased research that it also has to do with um, specifically depression and anxiety and that a lot of people have, you know, you have post-stroke fatigue. So you're just tired. And frankly, I'm just tired all the time now and it's hard. But I have been working through the issues of when I have low mood and low mood isn't for me, it's not like really dramatic depression, but you know, like difficulty finding pleasure in things, difficulty feeling motivated, just like enjoying life as I want to and have. Um, what is the physical brain injury? What is my awareness of the brain injury and my sadness about that? What is like the physical tiredness of having a brain injury. So what is the brain injury causing depression? What is the brain injury causing fatigue? And what is the experience of having a brain injury causing either of those things? I don't know the answer, but it is kind of fascinating. And it's given me on the best days, a lot of latitude with being gentle to myself. On the worst days, it's given me a lot of things to blame, <laughs> but it's interesting. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and kind of like I said earlier, um, like I've had, uh, I dislocated one of my knees about 10 years ago. And uh, so that kind of gives me some intermittent issues, which is part of why I use a cane sometimes. And I also recently invested in some um, better like knee braces for that as well. There's the tremor, which is a newer thing that kind of comes and goes. And I have a couple of other uh, like sensory issues. So yeah, a few things I've had to kind of adjust for uh, in, in my life and kind of more recently. So yeah, I, I guess just everyone kind of has uh, has their own sort of experience that they work through. And and I really do appreciate you uh, sharing your, your experience because uh, I think it can be enlightening to people who have never experienced something like, or don't know anyone who has, because I think that's another thing that's a big deal when, when you don't even know someone who is a certain way or has a certain um, experience, then it's uh, a lot harder to kind of empathize and, and sympathize with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So thank you for helping enlighten my audience. I guess is the, the long way around for that. Um, so the next question on the list here, I know you've been talking about your husband and your your friends and your sister, and that's great. I like to ask about the close relationships in people's lives because, you know, in my life, uh, the kind of example that I give is that my dad wanted me to go into the trades, but that wasn't really for me. And uh, I was always more creative and my mom kind of understood that better and supported a little bit better. Um, and then, of course, my, my friends and, and now kind of a new relationship. And so um, but basically, if, if we're not supported well by the people who are close to us, then it can certainly slow us down. It can take a lot longer to get where we need to be. It can prevent us from getting to where we need to be in some cases. So um, I try to keep it positive, though. Like, what, In what ways have the, the close relationships in your life been supportive of you and your, your goals and your, your plans and your, your um, ideals, I guess? Well, I think so. I think we talked about this a little bit off uh, before we started recording. I love to give people the per- permission, and this is definitely something I do within the container of, you know, matchmaking and coaching and things like that, to value romantic relationships because I think a lot of people think, and I have had to work through this tremendously, uh, think that, okay, if I'm a person who really likes relationships, if I'm a person who is really happy with my relationship, am I simple? And not simple in like a, you know, like an ableist way, but am I like a kind of a, you know, just like a, a basic person who doesn't have a lot of depth. Am I, you know, am I, am I hypnotized by the heteropatriarchal idea that as a woman, I should be a partner first and foremost. And there are excellent ways to think about that and critique that. And that's absolutely something that should be done, but I'm not necessarily here about policing what makes us happy, including if it's a romantic relationship. And so I'm going to shout out my husband. We had not been together that long when I had the stroke. And certainly, again, in my quest to kind of like understand myself and my situation to heal myself, I also did a lot of research on caregiver burden. And there are tons of people who, in a time of extreme crisis, and like I was in the ICU, I spent, you know, over a month in, you know, the hospital and inpatient rehab. I, like, it was it was touch and go at the beginning, but also there was no guarantee that I was going to get, get better. And I've gotten better. What is better? How good is better? What is better necessarily good? All these questions. Um, but he was there with me when it was really, you know, like the days where it's like, Oh, she could, she can walk on the bars. Wow. Or the first day I could eat food was really exciting, but he was also there for the days that I like hadn't showered in four days. And I was miserable at home when it's no longer you know when you're no longer inspirational it's been six months and people forget to call and people aren't sending soup anymore and it's just sad so he was there for that 
And then he's been really enthusiastic about me going back to school. He's been really enthusiastic about me taking over the business and and kind of thriving in that. But also even the times when I'm not thriving in these things, when it does feel like too much, when it does feel like it's not going exactly as I wanted, he's there. And I, in general, I've had like a lot of really great support. Also, sometimes extreme, extreme traumatic experiences show you maybe who you can kind of cast aside, who maybe isn't there for those things. And that's, you know, that's, I think, very normal. But I've been very lucky that with my family and especially with my partner, we have all been kind of in this together. And I've had a lot of support and I've had the chance in the intervening years to support my family and my partner the same way, which is important. Not quite to the same extent because no one's had like an extreme traumatic event, but knock on wood. Um, But yeah, it's been, that was really helpful for me. I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, certainly, it's it's definitely when you have someone like that who's literally like in your life all the time that you live with. If they're if they're not a positive supportive presence, then that's that's definitely bad news. <laughs> um, so the next question here on the list, and you kind of I guess you kind of touched on it through some of your past answers. Um, so I, I keep framing this in slightly different ways, but uh, I guess the way I'm looking at it now is. What's something, uh, I guess maybe we can look at aside from the strokes, because that's a very obvious answer, but um, what's something in your life that uh, really didn't go the way that you'd hoped or was kind of a big like disappointment or failure, but that you ultimately still learned something valuable from it? And what, what did you learn? So as you pointed out, like, I'm a good student. I like, <laughs> like reading things ahead of time. And this is the one question that I, I didn't have an automatic response for. But I think in thinking about it, and obviously the stroke is a very obvious answer, and I felt like I was probably going to touch on it eight different times. Um, so the one that came out to me is I can think of a few relationships that I've had. And I've, I've definitely intimated that I am like a relationship person. I put, you know, I don't, I don't devalue my family and friend relationships but they are a point of importance to me and I can think of some relationships in the past that have ended that I saw as failures and I saw as personal failures and I really I mean I'm happy that I did therapy specifically focused on that at one point I think that was really good that was actually the catalyst was the front of a front meeting um but yeah I, I think if I had stayed in any of those relationships or like tried to stay in any of those relationships I would have really had to compromise myself. I would have had to put myself in situations where I was staying with people who didn't respect me the way I deserve to be respected. Yeah, that that's that's been an answer a few times, as I'm sure you could uh, guess. Um, and and it makes sense. Like this this question, a lot of these questions can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And so it could be like you know not getting a job that you really wanted. It could be a relationship failing that you felt like was kind of your fault. It could be any number of things and all answers are valid. So (laughs) thank you for that. Um, So if you feel comfortable uh, giving some advice, this is the point where I like to ask the guests to offer some advice to three different groups and you can give either the same advice to all three or you can give separate advice to each if you want to do that. So um, what advice would you give to a teenager? What advice would you give to a 30 year old? And what advice would you give to an elder or grandparent? I was trying to think about this because I think I give a lot of advice and the, I guess the two pieces of advice I give and coaching is not advice giving, but you know, often with clients who are coaching clients or online dating support clients or matchmaking clients, I'll also sometimes do little calls where they're just like, what do you think about this? Or is this weird? Or should I do this? And that's where advice comes into play a little more. And frankly, 
if I could do anything, if I could just like snap my fingers and be a thing, I'd probably be like an advice columnist or podcaster because I just really like it. Um, I think the two pieces of, of advice that I keep coming back to and that I do see as being applicable for all three are to be open-minded to the best extent of their ability, but also to kind of explore that. I have, you know, I have clients, you know, obviously I come from the relationship dating world. So I'm thinking about this, but it applies to anything. You, you know, like it behooves you to think about many different possibilities to not expect the worst or expect the best from any situation, but to be open to multiple situations and scenarios. And whether that's, you know, what you expect someone will respond to you when you send them a message what you expect will come out of applying for a job, what you would, you know, there's just so many different worlds where that, that fits. And then the other one, and this is, it can be a little trite and it's certainly something that I find myself, you know, resharing on Instagram stories because a lot of people post it all the time is that there's still time and it's not too late. I have, I have clients who come to me who are very young and they're thinking, Oh, well, it's too late for me to find love. And I'm like, what? No, 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 no. You're like, you know, 32 or whatever. Calm down. But if I, I have clients in their you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s who come to me and say, well, it's too late, it's not too late for them either. And, and I've had many happy partnerships that I've been able to have a hand in with you know, older generations. But yeah, I think whether, again, it's for a relationship, whether it's to learn a new skill, whether it's to you know, try a different career path, whether it's to reconnect with someone important to you, there are so many things that we want to do. And it's it's very very cheesy but it is never too late and I try to remind myself of that a lot because otherwise I can find reasons to hold myself back and some of that is not being open-minded but then some of that is just assuming that you know the perfect moment either has passed or even the perfect moment hasn't come up yet and I think within you know a certain range there are no perfect moments yeah like uh so as one of the things I've said is that some of the the questions on the show tend to get a lot of the same answers. And this is one where I'm actually glad that a lot of the same, some things are coming up over and over again. Like a lot of people have said, it's not too late. And because I'm hoping that people will listen to multiple of these episodes, they'll keep hearing that. And hopefully that will start to really sink in and they'll realize, oh, you know what? It's not, I can go and I can do this thing or I can try this thing. And so I'm glad every time someone says that, I'm never, I'm never disappointed that that comes up again, because <laughs> I do agree with it as well. And, you know, as uh, my own life, and I, I've talked about it in bits and pieces through different episodes of my kind of journey and stuff. But um, yeah, like, it was a lot of like, oh, maybe this is what I want to do. Oh, maybe this is the right thing for me. And just a lot of, nope, not quite. I'll try this now. And bouncing around, and it took me years and years to to kind of land where I am, but I, I found it eventually. <laughs> so this next question here, um, I don't know if I prefaced this in, in kind of the, um, in our pre-show correspondence, but a lot of people have been asking me about, you know, like why I started the show or what I hope to get out of it. If you can think of a, a different question than those to ask, so there's not too much repetition, I can always like explain that to you uh, later if you want. <laughs> um, yeah, this is another question I was thinking about. And I think what I'm curious about is, is there anything that you've heard from, I mean, potentially the answer is lots of things, but is there anything you've heard that you can particularly point to that changed the way you behaved or the way you, you know, like something about your life? That, that is definitely a tricky one. <laughs> I mean, I, I've kind of made a, made a point in my adult life of like trying to collect wisdom and curate insights and 
learn from people and see things differently. And I think there's been a lot of examples. Uh, like I've done a lot of work on myself because when I was a teenager, I remember I was kind of like you say, some of those clients, I was just very rigid and like, this is the only thing that I'm attracted to that I, this is the only kind of person I would want to date or um, you know, like this is the only kind of music that's good, or this is the only kind of food that I will eat and just a lot of that kind of stuff. And I have, um, worked on myself and challenged myself and like the growth mindset. If, if you're not familiar with this for the listeners, for the audience, there's something called the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. And you might kind of guess what those mean by the names of them. The fixed mindset is this belief that you are what you are and you can't change and you can't improve and you can't evolve. You just, you have the skills and the abilities that you have and you just work with them. And the growth mindset is the inverse that like, no, you can always grow. You can always improve. You can always do something differently. And I really think that that has been uh, part of the core of, of who I've been as, as an adult. And so um, like the, the kind of the, the eBooks that I've written, the curiosity guide series and kind of doing the show and the past shows that kind of led to it. Um, there's a whole like track record in my life of like always trying to learn and be better and grow. And ultimately I want to share this, which is part of why I do the show. I, I don't want to be the only one benefiting from the things that I'm learning. So um, yeah, I guess uh, yeah, that's kind of a, a very mishmashy answer, but <laughs> that's well, what happens. Great. Yeah, that's what that's what happens when I'm not as prepared, which is why I now do I give guests the opportunity because I realize, <laughs> oh, it's it's one thing to be put on the spot; it's different when you're just getting to ask the questions. So, um, yeah. So with that said, are there any specific causes or charities that you'd like to promote or raise awareness of? I was thinking about this because I was actually it's getting towards a like the tax receipt period. So I was getting a lot of emails saying like, Oh, we get a tax receipt for this. And so black lives matter is obviously the one that you were talking about other ones, like local charities. I'm thinking about things like supporting our youth uh, through the, through Sherburn health, uh, Toronto right crisis center, um, the native women's resource center in Toronto. Uh, Cam H is another one. I uh, really care about the 519 center. Uh, I also, I'm a matchmaker for humans, but I also volunteer for a rescue as an adoption coordinator. That's it's called Fetch and Release. Um, they're actually doing a fundraising campaign right now. It's also where I adopted my beautiful, sweet, wonderful dog. Um, so those are really important kind of more broadly uh, races, which is a refugee and image, uh, an immigrant crisis or sorry, center for educational legal, legal services. The uh, Amazon conservation, those are really important. There are so many. So I, I try to, I try to distribute, like I don't, I'm not made of money, but I try to distribute, uh, if you can do monthly giving, that's really important so that people have, even if it's like a smaller, you know, monthly donation so that they can kind of count on your donation. Giving Tuesday is right around the corner. So a lot of people are going to be thinking about that specifically, but there's, there's never a bad time to, to look into another organization that you could give something to. Yeah, absolutely. And I have said this on the show before that, like, as you said, there are so many worthy causes out there and we can't all help all of them. But each episode, I like to try and, you know, highlight at least one specifically to draw people's attention to. And anyone who kind of follows the show over time, they will hear about all these different places. And there's been ones that have come up that I haven't known about because I've had, you know, I have had actually a couple of guests who are not in Toronto. So I get to hear about uh, organizations in, in other provinces or even countries. So 
um, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, we all get to learn again, as I said. Um, so with that said, uh, we are now at the plugs section. Um, obviously, you have friend of a friend matchmaking, which people can look into. Is there anything else, like whether it's social media or any kind of like online presence that you are comfortable sharing with people to kind of check you out and follow what you're doing? Yeah. I've really just streamlined any, everything to go through friend of a friend matchmaking. So Instagram and Facebook are the particular ones as well as friend of a friend matchmaking.com. I have a Twitter FOAF dating because friend of a friend matchmaking was too long. Uh, I don't love Twitter. It is an interesting place. I certainly like reading things, but I find that I invariably read things that make me sad and angry and frustrated and I don't have the bandwidth for that. So I tend to prefer Instagram and Facebook for those reasons. Um, I don't have anything else to really plug these days. My work is is a wonderful, enriching part of my life and everything else is just kind of like hanging out at home. You know, I have I've done podcasts and radio before and it's definitely something that I'm working on for the future, but I, I wish I had something concrete and it's sort of just like a it's a thing that I want to do, but I'm still having that thought of do I have the space for it to make it you know, something valuable and enjoyable. And I'm in kind of pre-contemplation mode still. Very cool. Um, well, I will just put it out there. If you ever do end up doing a podcast again, if you would uh, have me on the show, I would love to do it. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and thank you so much again for coming on here. Um, I will do my plugs really quick. I'm actually excited because literally today, the day that we were recording, I finished the short fiction novel uh, that I am. It's going to be out in December. This episode will also probably be out in December, but, but it's called uh, Parker and Tucker Private Investigators. It is a short fiction novel about two detectives and uh i hope it's not the last uh fiction novel that i write i do a lot of non-fiction writing much more but um this is a, a fun little project that's been in the works for a little over a year and i'm really happy that it's finally done <laughs> it's a milestone um aside from that um i have uh merch which is original designs that i've made which are mostly lgbtq centric and themed but uh, not all of them and that's at redbubble.com slash people slash artemis creates um, you can go to my website, artemiscreates.com. Everything I do is there. Uh, the Curiosity Guides, which I mentioned before, educational eBooks on a variety of topics. They're all free. They're all PDFs, so they're easy to access. And uh, yeah, I have music uh, online. You look for Artemis Creates Music, you will find it. And theme music for the show is, is available online as well. So, um, And of course, Patreon, because uh, we do the bonus episode for the show on Patreon. So if you uh, want to you know, hear more from Claire and, and hear some more interesting and fun answers, because uh, the bonus is a little bit more casual and relaxed, um, head over to patreon.com slash Artemis Creates, and that's where you will find that and other things that I'm doing. So with that said, uh, we are going to do the traditional hat sign-off now, which I always look forward to. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's almost out of reach. Um, today I have got... <laughs> My bright Victoria. Yeah, I I felt that it went pretty well with this with this shirt actually. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, you look you look much better without it's, the headphones there. <laughs> it's very warm. It's a little mohair lavender hat that my mom used to wear, and then she became allergic to wool wool, so I adopted it. Do you do you know where it originally uh, was like acquired or purchased? I don't know, but I know she wore it when I was a kid, and it's really really soft, and it kind of I don't know it makes me feel a little mod and it's very it's very warm very cute 
Yes. So, um, yeah, thank you again for, for being on the show and for indulging me in this practice. I, I think this is a fun little way to kind of end the show. And I think if we wore hats the entire time, it'd be a little bit more gimmicky. So that's why we just do it right at the end to sign off. But thank you again for watching and listening to my audience. And uh, I hope that you will check out uh, Claire's other work, the obviously friend. Maybe you don't, maybe you're not single and you're not looking for someone right now, but, you know, still check out uh, her social feeds and stuff and see what's going on there and uh yeah you know where you know where to find my stuff if you want to so um with that said until next time keep uh, collecting those hats and stay curious